So what's your favorite animated movie? Your favorite one? Is it Snow White or Cinderella or 101 Dalmatians, uh, Robin Hood, Iron Giant, The Land Before Time, Aladdin, Frozen, The Brave Little Toaster, maybe? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Thanks, Ellie Ray. I like a good little laugh on the toaster. You know, animated movies are, are very interesting, but what is it that makes an animated movie an animated movie? Well, by definition, it is the technique of photographing successive drawings or positioning of puppets or models in such a way to create the illusion of movement. So it's just creating the illusion of movement. In other words, animation is fulfilling the root word that it comes from, and that is to animate. To animate means to bring to life. So animation is bringing to life drawings and and puppets and models. There is something that is unique about what it does. And in modern times, with modern animation, it takes a team of people to do that. Uh, As one animation studio rumoredly says, teamwork makes the dream works. Yeah. Hey, I'm like SeaWorld. My puns are on porpoise. Thank you. Thank you. I like the one clap. I'll take it. Look, animation's fun. It is. It's, it's fun. It's, it's entertaining. But it is still an illusion. It's still something that's not really real. And in real life, we need something that's not just an illusion. We need something that's not just animation. We need something that's, that's real. And there is this one brave little reality this iron giant of a reality that was not frozen before in the land before time, but it actually was full of power before time even existed. And that reality is the reality that we need to animate our life the most. This one reality is the reality we need to bring life to our life. So, what is that reality? Well, we continue our series higher where we are listening to Jesus teach his closest friends and, and Jesus is talking about one of the most important realities in the universe. And we'll look at the, the last part of Matthew chapter 5 today and, and in this moment as Jesus is speaking to his friends, he is giving them the most animated animation of all time. And it is in this animation, this, this one thing, that we find what we desperately need to embrace and what we desperately need even for our own lives. And what is that reality? Well, let's see if we can find out. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, Jesus speaking to his disciples says this, So that you may prove yourselves to be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, what kind of proof is Jesus talking about? What's he talking about here? Well, in the sentence right before this, Jesus told his friends to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute them. So let's just do that math for a second. Think of who your enemies are. (laughs) Think of who those people are in your life that are persecuting you. And Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This sounds crazy that sounds like crazy talk which is exactly why Jesus follows that up 
with saying that if you are loving your enemies and if you're praying for those who persecute you, you are actually looking like and proving yourself to be a child of God, a true follower of Jesus, a true Christian. The picture that he paints here is is not confusing, but it is important to remember this. Loving your enemies doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you love somebody who's against you or because you pray for somebody who's a problem in your life doesn't mean that you automatically become a Christian, that everything becomes right between you and God. But loving your enemies can reveal that you are a believer, that you are a follower of Jesus. It can show that your profession of faith is a true possession of faith. It can show that if you've been adopted into the family of God, that a reflection of the truth of your adoption is that your actions are showing love, even when love is very, very hard to do. I have a a friend from high school that if you were to put her and her daughter next to one another, you would think you're looking at the same person. It is uncanny how much they look alike. But just because they look alike doesn't make her her daughter. But because they look alike, it proves she is her daughter. So so what does God look like? What is it that we're supposed to be proving here? Look what Jesus says next in verse 45. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. God causes the son to rise on everyone. But not everyone believes that. Not everyone believes that God created the world and everything that is in it. Not everybody believes that that God sustains and maintains the world every single second of every day. Charles Darwin was a naturalist, a geologist, a biologist. In 1873, he was responding to a letter that he had received from a young man in the Netherlands. And in his response to the letter, what he said to the young man was this, that, that he really struggled. Because when he looked at the the wonder of the universe, it was hard for him to think that it all happened by chance. And because of that impossibility, it seemed that the argument for God creating the world and the universe seemed to be the best argument. But Darwin wrote that he struggled and just could not decide to agree with that argument. He also noted that he, he really felt like that there were some very capable men, some men that should be respected, men who were worthy of who they were, and, and they believed in God as creator, and he was inclined to defer to them, but he still just could not pull the trigger and say, yes, definitively, God created all that exists. And then he wrote this. The safest conclusion seems to be that the whole subject is beyond the scope of man's intellect. But man can do his duty. So Darwin seems to be saying that the the safest conclusion that you can come to is just do your best in life because there's no way any of us are are really going to know if God really created the earth or not. However, with Darwin and with every human being, there's still that nagging question. Is all of this really just scientific chance? I mean, the, the majesty of the mountains, just, just scientific chance. The deep, blue, roaring beauty of the ocean, just, 
just scientific chance. The grandness of the Grand Canyon, the cooing of a, a newborn baby, the intricacies of the human body, the existence of bacon? I mean, come on. Just chance, just, just the random colliding of atoms? Many people would say, yes, yes, that's, that's what it is, because that's easier to digest than the concept that there was this miraculous creation by a creator, by a deity, by God himself. John Lennox is a mathematician and a bioethicist at Oxford University. He's also a believer. He said this, I agree, of course, that miracles are inherently improbable. Although one cannot help wondering if they are as improbable as a universe popping into existence from nothing. There's some truth there. So where does that leave us? Well, there's about a gazillion point seventy three more things that we could say about the origins of the universe. But for the sake of time, let's just consider one. And, and here's the one other thing. The one true God has given the world a declaration about creation. And he calls the world to believe in that declaration, to embrace that declaration through faith, and not just blind faith, but, but blind faith through the lens of science and, and through the lens of reason and through the lens of logic. And that declaration is simply this, from the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, will that solve every mathematical and, and metaphysical and magical and mystical question that we have about good and evil and right and wrong in the world? No, it won't. But God, through his book, through the Bible, offers to the world a declaration about creation that if it is embraced, will create a confidence, a satisfaction, and a hope in your life that is unrivaled in this universe. And Jesus says that that very God every day causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He causes the, the sun to rise on the terrorist in the cave in the Middle East, and he causes the sun to rise in the same way to the grandmother in the kitchen in the middle of Eastover in South Carolina. This, this is who God is. It's it, what he does. His common grace is given to the world every single day. But someone may say, I don't like that. I, I have a problem with that. And that's why I'm not going to believe in God because there's, there's just something I don't like about that. Charles Spurgeon said this, God constantly does that which many people regard almost as a crime, namely, doing good to the undeserving. So let me ask you a question. How many of you have gotten something this week that you didn't deserve? I guess some of you didn't deserve. Anybody disobey your parents or, or dishonor your spouse or discourage your kids, but you still got dinner? You, you, you still got flowers for your birthday. You, you still got a hug at bedtime. Anybody 
broke the speed limit this week and didn't get pulled over, you know? I mean, you saw the patrolman in the corner of your eye and you're thinking, oh, please, 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 please. Anybody this week didn't study for a test and then come to find out that when the test results came back the next day, the teacher graded everything on a curve and, and you did all right. Anybody spread gossip this week on the phone or in a text or an email and you didn't get caught by the person that you were slandering? Anybody this week not get fired for stealing that pen and that extra ream of paper that you took from the office? Anybody this week have a day where you did absolutely nothing for another human being and you still woke up the next morning? Now, those are just basic examples. We could even say they're kind of weak examples, maybe, of the reality that every single one of us have gotten a bucket load of things that we didn't deserve this week. Some common grace and common mercy and, and common love. And we can puff up with pride and say, well, it's not fair that God causes the sun to rise on the terrace. We can do that. But you know what? Praise God for his supposed unfairness because his unfairness, so to speak, is the only reason you're here today. It's the only reason we're alive. It's the only reason we exist. You see, whether we believe in God or not, whether someone denies the existence of God or embraces the existence of God, every single human being will one day die. This is, this is not our final home. It's not my final home. It's not your final home. It's not the final home of the terrorist or, or the grandmother. This is a temporary home. It's a, it's a beautiful, fantastic, wonderful temporary home where there is creativity and there's construction and there's learning and there's a gazillion point seventy three other things. There's, there's lots of beauty, lots of amazing in this temporary home. But this is not our permanent home. There is coming a day for every single one of us where we will breathe our last. And what we do with God today determines what happens with that last breath on earth. That last breath will either usher us into satisfaction forever or it will usher us into separation forever we will either be ushered into an eternal life of all that is good and happy and holy and right and satisfying or we will be separated for all eternity from everything that is good and happy and holy and satisfying and there's absolutely nothing we can do to deserve eternity with God. It, it is a free gift from God through Jesus Christ. We, we don't deserve it. We can't make it happen. We are completely undeserving. So before we start throwing stones at God for his criminal activity of being loving to the undeserving, it might be helpful for us to remember that we are the undeserving. We forget that. We forget it almost all day long. Because without Christ, we are the enemies of God. Now, some of us say, well, I don't agree with that. You know, I don't think I'm an enemy of God. I'm pretty good. Pay my taxes. Never murdered anybody. I grew up in church. I, I still go to church. I, I don't think I'm an enemy of God. I, I don't think there's any enemy of God in me. All right, a few simple questions. 
Have you perfectly always obeyed every law of South Carolina? Have you perfectly always obeyed every law of the United States? Have you perfectly always obeyed all the laws of your neighborhood pool or your homeowners association? Have you perfectly always obeyed the Ten Commandments? Have you perfectly always worshipped God first and most with, with no rivals? Have you always perfectly obeyed your parents as a child and honored them as an adult? Have you always perfectly never lied or kept the truth to yourself? Have you always perfectly never lusted after another person or, or lusted after something that they have, like a, a new home or a new car or, or new shoes or, or a promotion at work or, or a thick, full head of hair, you know? I mean, I have, you know? I mean, the shoes, not the hair, okay? Well, sometimes the hair. See, the reality is when we look at our lives, we know that we can't say the answer is yes to that question. And so then we bring in this, this fascinating statement from James, the half-brother of Jesus. James chapter 2, verse 10 of the Bible. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles in one point, has become guilty of all. Now, does that mean if you sin one time, you're going to hell? No. But if that were true, for believers, it would call into question the finished work of Jesus Christ. No, in the context of what James is saying is this. He's saying, in the church, there were people whose Christianity was phony. It, it wasn't real. It was fake. And there was like this one sin that they just wouldn't give up on and truly surrender to Christ. Mel Trotter devoted 40 years of his life to gospel ministry to the homeless and the needy in Michigan. He said this one time, in the last analysis, there is always just one sin that keeps a man from getting right with God. Just the one. So is that one still in your life today? Are things right between you and God? Again, not your definition of right, but his definition of right. Are things right between you and God today? Or is, is there still just the one thing that's, that's keeping you from him? I saw a story years ago about a lady named Lily. Lily was a school bus driver in Houston, Texas. And, and she had an amazing record as a school bus driver. I mean, a perfect record. And so she was scheduled to be given an award, a safety award from the district for her driving record. And on the way to the awards banquet that night, she was driving her bus. And she had 16 of her colleagues in the bus. And she took a curve just a little bit too sharp. The bus flipped over, and Lily and 16 other passengers had to go to the hospital for treatment. Perfect record. Everything was, was great. And then she had the one accident. Now, did she still get the safety award? No. The committee could not give a safety award to somebody that just sent 17 people to the hospital. It's sad, but it's, but it's true. So just one act of defiance, just one act of rebellion against God makes a person a transgressor of God's law. 
and this sense of ongoing rebellion, even just one act of ongoing rebellion against God makes a person an enemy of God such that they are separated from God forever. So it is wise for us to be careful to look at God and say, you are unfair for causing that sun to rise on the terrorist. Because the reality is, it is stunning that the love and grace and mercy of God causes the sun to rise on any of us. The common, beautiful, merciful grace of God is constantly working in the world. And if we can get that, if we can get that we're undeserving, if we can get that, that we too once were enemies of God or, or maybe still are, if we can get that as believers, we can get what Jesus is teaching. We can. It's not easy, but we can get it. If we realize that we are undeserving, we can do the math. Okay, I can obey Jesus. I can love my enemies. I can pray for those who persecute me because when I do, I prove that I'm a child of God. I prove that I'm a follower of Jesus. I prove that I really am a Christian because I understand who just caused the sun to rise on me today. You know, Tammy said it earlier, and she's right. It's it's a gorgeous day, you know. I've told you all this before. As Christians, be very, very careful of ever saying out loud, man, it is such a nasty day. Really, we should avoid that. That, that should be in our minds not to say that. Why? Because today, even behind the clouds, the sun is there. The love and grace and mercy of God, it's always behind the clouds. Even when we can't see the sun, the sun is there. The mercy of God is there. The grace of God is there. Listen again to those words from Charles Spurgeon. God constantly does that, which many people regard almost as a crime, namely doing good to the undeserving. And then he went on to say this. It is the very genius of Christianity to help those who are utterly unworthy, to be kind and generous even to those who are pretty certain to repay us with ingratitude and malice. Kind even to those who will repay us with ingratitude and malice. So, with all of this in mind, what are we called to be animated with? What is this animation that is good for our souls and good for the world around us? What is this animation that should be bringing life to us and bringing life to the world around us? It's the same thing that God animates the world with every day. It's the same animation that God brings into my life and your life and the life of the terrorists and the life of the grandmother. And that animation is love. It's love. It's, it's this deep, deep, unexplainable love. God constantly keeps sending his love to the world. And the professing Christian, the child of God, who has been adopted into the family of the kingdom of heaven, should have a life that is marked and animated with that love. And Jesus says that love should extend even to our enemies. That love should extend to people at home, at work, 
at school, in traffic, on the interstate, or, or anywhere else we are, that refuse, refuse to do anything but defy God and his ways. So, let me ask you a question. Anybody got a spouse or a child or a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or a brother or a sister who right now is refusing to repent? I'm thinking we all do, right? Anybody got somebody at work, at home, at school, on your softball team or, or whatever it is in life that, that's refusing to repent? Jesus says, love them. <laughs> Come on, Jesus. That's, that's what he says. Like he says, if, if you have comprehended and understood what you've received, then love them. Love them. But that's hard. Super, super, super hard. So what does it look like in real life? I was reading an article earlier this week by Stephen Whitmer, and he was writing about Rosaria Butterfield's journey from a life of, of same-sex relationships into a life with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he was writing about her opinion as a non-Christian of Christians. And her opinion as a, a non-Christian looking at Christians were that the Christians, they were poor thinkers, they were judgmental, they were scornful and they were afraid of diversity. And she wrote a, a letter to the local newspaper uh, critiquing uh, a local Christian organization. And she got a lot of responses for what she wrote in the paper. In fact, a lot of letters started coming to her, so much so that she got two big boxes and stuck them in the corner of her office. And she started divvying them up in the two boxes. And the two boxes were hate mail and fan mail. And then she got this one letter, and it was from a pastor of a local church there in town. And it was a two-page letter, and she read it, and she didn't know which box to put it in. She, she just couldn't figure it out. This is what she said about the letter. It was the kindest letter of opposition that I had ever received. She said as she read that letter, the, the words demonstrated that that person was not against her. Wasn't against her. The, the words caused her to, to listen and pay attention and, and to think. She eventually reached out to that pastor, and she became friends with that pastor and his wife. And their friendship was a significant part of how she came to Christ. And then she said this, they talked with me in a way that didn't make me feel erased. Or put another way, they talked to her in a way that showed that their life was animated with the love of God. That their life was animated with the love of Jesus. They, they spoke in, in such a way that the love of Christ was seen even toward those that they oppose. Look, I know it's not easy. It's not. It's not easy in my house, 
It's not easy in this church. It's not easy for me in traffic. It's not easy when, um, when, when someone tells me they're out of bacon at the restaurant, okay? All right, it's not easy. It's not easy. But if the curse of sin has lost its grip on us, we can obey Jesus. We can. We can love our enemies. We can pray for those who persecute us. We can love those who defy God. And when we do, our love will not only prove that we're a child of God, that we're a follower of Jesus, that we're a true Christian, but, but our love, our love may just be part of what God uses to bring that person to Christ. Our love might be something that becomes part of not them just feeling like they're not erased, but it may become part of them finding Christ and having the penalty of their sin erased. Never to be condemned again. And dear Christian, that's our song. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for Dow Welsh in Christ. There's plenty of condemnation for Dow apart from Christ, but there's no condemnation in Christ. That is our story. That is our song. And if it's our song, then we can love our enemies. We can pray for those who persecute us. We can be a part of their sins being erased. Dear Christian, let's be animated like that. Let's love like that for the glory of God and for the good of our souls. Let's obey Jesus and love like that.